Before we get started, there's something I'm really excited to share with you. It's no secret that we think diversifying your income is incredibly important. One way that we do it is by investing in rental properties. We've done a ton of research, interviewed experts, and invested over $100,000 of our own money in income-producing rental properties. I am proud to announce that we're launching Rental Properties for Passive Investors. It's a course on exactly how you can passively invest in rental properties. Like our podcast, it's incredibly actionable and details exactly how we've both purchased and managed our rental properties. It also includes a year of investable, the analysis tool we use to make sure the rental properties we purchase are actually profitable. Finding the deal is half the battle. You need to know your numbers to make a profitable investment. We're running a pre-sale for $100 off. Head over to listenmoneymatters.com slash REI to learn more. That's listenmoneymatters.com slash REI for $100 off rental properties for passive investors. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, eat the bacon, don't be the bacon. My name is Thomas. And I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. And Andrew, I feel like we need to rename this podcast to Listen Technical Difficulties Matter. Ah, uh, I know. <laughs> Man. <laughs> In the past two weeks, I have replaced my mixing board with a new audio interface. You have replaced your laptop, apparently. Mm. And this morning, I drove my car to the grocery store, and uh, it is still there. Because <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't turn on. Oh, my God. Is this the one that you just got and then you drove from Iowa? I mean, I, I got it in 2015, so mm. I've had it for over two years now. I don't think it's broken. You're I think making that me feel old. It's from 2015? Night, yeah, it is. Well, I've known you since 2013 now. Damn, so dude. Four years at this point. Um, I, think, I think what happened is last night we drove out to this corn maze like late and mm. went through it in the dark, which is great. And then we went to an arcade and came back and I was low on gas, but my little meter said like 50 miles left. And I'm like, all right, I can just pop over to the gas station tomorrow at some point and refill it. So I drive to the grocery store to get breakfast this morning and I wanted to get back in time to record with you. So I just parked there and I'm like, I'll get gas later. And I didn't realize this, but I parked on an incline with the front of the car facing upward. And I'm pretty sure that there's so little gas in the tank that it literally can't get into the engine and I bet you there was like a some amount in the engine that was like creating a false number of how many miles I had left so I'm gonna have a fun little excursion after we record to uh go get myself a gas tank <laughs> and then go fill her up in the parking lot and hopefully the battery is not dead otherwise we're gonna have to jump it too imagining like a, a, a scene from walking dead where Rick has just like a gas canister and he's filling up a car and that's just like yep. you it's going to be like that unless there's some better way that I can do it. I was like, I was contemplating just throwing the car in neutral and trying to let it like go down the hill and then kind of rest at one of the more flat parts. But there was a car that was like, I don't know, a, a little bit behind me. And I was just kind of afraid that I wouldn't be able to stop the car in time. <laughs> it probably would have worked, but I didn't want to risk it. I don't want to add any more stress to my Saturday. Sounds like it would make a good behind-the-scenes YouTube video. Yeah. Behind-the-scenes of Thomas's terribly dysfunctional life. And not get gas when he should get gas. <laughs> park on an incline. Yeah. Anyway, 
Um, we're talking about something that we have. Have we avoided this topic? Have we just like not done it because we don't know anything about it? I don't. I don't know why. Or have we ever done anything on it? Uh, so we talked about it like years ago in like the most lightest general sense. Um, okay. And I oh, think. Yes, never mind. There was a what the fuck is Bitcoin episode a long time ago. It was like wildcat currency or something. Episode 22. Mm. Okay. I totally forgot that this was an episode that happened. Uh, so but a I'm lot has changed. Assume, well, a lot has changed, but I'm also going to assume that at the time you guys did not have a decent understanding of blockchain technology or really or how to prepare for a podcast (laughs) podcast than just like you open a beer and you talk right that's all you do (laughs) (laughs) that's all i do you do something different um i do i I get a coffee that's Mm. that's about the only difference so Um, before you tell me and before i mean because you're gonna kind of teach me and i may be asking you leading questions i have one um thing that i want to ask First, uh, are you bullish on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or are you um, bearish on it? Um, good question. I am bullish on cryptocurrency and the technology behind it in general. Mm-hmm. When it comes to specific implementations of that technology like Bitcoin, it's a little bit harder to say because I think like you – I see the value of Bitcoin as very speculative. Everyone wants to hodl, as they like to say in the cryptocurrency community, which is basically just hold it. Yeah, so like four years ago, some dude got drunk and they were on the Bitcoin forums and they were like, I'm not a smart trader. I don't know how to time the market, so I'm just going to hodl my Bitcoins because he he spelled hold wrong. (laughs) And it became a meme. So now like... If you're in the crypto community, you basically just say you're you're hodling your coins. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of Lord of the Rings or something. Something like that. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's hard to tell, right? The the one thing that I will say when it comes to being bullish on Bitcoin is, I was listening to a podcast the other day where one of the one of the hosts was a a keynote speaker at a tech and marketing conference. Mm. So you'd think that these are going to be like the most cutting edge people. And he asked the audience, like, how many of you hold Bitcoin? And like 12 people raised their hands. And then he said, how many of you hold alternative coins like Ethereum or Litecoin? And like only three kept their hands up. Mm. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say what the regulators are going to do with with Bitcoin specifically and cryptocurrency in general. It's hard to say. All right. Let's not get into the weeds just yet. All that stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I'm Thomas, bullish enough to put a little bit in it just to see. Let me let me ask you. We there is Bitcoin and then cryptocurrency. What is the difference? <laughs> <laughs> the, okay. These are so, two terms. Yeah. So I guess to put the things up front, what I want to explain in this episode, since we had such a messy opening here, <laughs> I want to explain what Bitcoin is, what a cryptocurrency is. I want to give a brief explanation of the technology that enables it to work in the way that it does Mm -hmm. um and it's a combination of several different technologies and then i want to maybe give like some options for getting your hands on some but not necessarily a recommendation to do so Mm -hmm. because i feel like if if we just like skip over that part then 
I don't know, people might go do really dumb things to get it. We'll so. get into our feelings <laughs> later because I, I yeah. have strong feelings. You have strong feelings about it? I have strong I, feelings. I thought when I was texting you, you were like, this shit is a bubble. It's stupid. <laughs> I guess we won't talk about it. No. I, I, have, I have some interesting uh, things to like quote and whatever. But So okay. tell me about uh, Bitcoin and so how it differs or what is the relation to cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is basically this currency that is generated through a cryptographic process and through different algorithms and programs. But essentially, cryptocurrency in its current iteration, which Bitcoin is the best, uh, the most popular and biggest application of it, is a decentralized currency network. What does that mean, decentralized? So basically, what that means is there's a peer-to-peer network, basically like Napster or... or um, LimeWire? LimeWire or anything <laughs> like that, a BitTorrent. Basically, there are computers that are part of the network. All of those computers are considered to be nodes. And whenever a transaction happens, that transaction is propagated across the network. So all of the nodes are informed about it. So this is really different from the way that basically all other currencies operate today because with like the U.S. dollar or anything, it's all going through a centralized authority that clears the transactions, says, yes, this transaction is legitimate, and basically helps everyone achieve consensus. But a mm. consensus is achieved by saying that big so, authority over there backed by the government said so, so we up. trust it. Hold up for a second. So when you say uh, like central authority, whatever, so say I go to Starbucks <clears throat> and I want a pumpkin spice latte because I'm a basic B. And uh, <laughs> I, um, I use my visa, right, mm-hmm. because it's more than $2. And um, the, the verifying entity there, I guess, is Visa. Mm-hmm. Or, or, I mean, obviously the Treasury isn't verifying my pumpkin spice basic purchase. But oh, there there's is a guy at the Treasury who is his whole job is to see when Andrew Fiebert from Hoboken, New Jersey, buys PSLs. Just to judge me. And mark it down. And yes, and to judge you. And oh, oh my God, dude. I was walking in Hoboken the other day and I saw this uh, Uber driver. He was on the side of the road out of his car. He was spraying a pumpkin spice spray in his car. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that guy's so basic. Dude, this, it's gone too far. It seriously has gone too far. There's pumpkin spice everything. Mm. And I bought pumpkin soup the other day. So I'm adding to the problem. But anyway, yeah, you buy your pumpkin spice latte. Now, this is something that I've been meaning to read up more on. I'm going to be honest. Mm. I started reading up on this stuff like a week ago. Mm-hmm. And then I, I texted you and I said, Andrew, let's do a crypto episode. And I'm thinking like we already had a couple of interviews scheduled for next or no, two weeks from now. So I'm like, Andrew's going to probably schedule this in November. I'm going to be fine. And then you schedule it <laughs> for this week. Now, it's fine because I've been like binge reading stuff. Um, but I don't, I could, I can't explain to you the exact process for how Visa clears a transaction and how but that relates. That's fine. To and I, I guess there's the, basically a centralized authority, right? The, the thing is that instead of, yeah, instead of like Visa and then whatever they do behind the scenes saying, yes, Andrew has money and yes, now it's in Starbucks account. You're saying that when something happens in Bitcoin, like you give it to me, I give it to you like this collective group of the internet that uses Bitcoin verifies that. Yes, exactly. Does that have so, a name? Like, yeah. So basically, there's there's a there's an entity or an object or whatever you want to call it called the blockchain, 
And this is where all of the trust in the system is derived from. But it is ironically a system that wait, does wait, wait. don't gloss require- over blockchain, though. Let- I'm, I'm going to define oh, it. Okay. But ironically, it's a system that does not require trust. Mm. So essentially, when you make a transaction, if you buy this fidget spinner from me mm. and you send me 0.1 Bitcoin, which would be stupid because that's like $400. <laughs> but hey, this is a pretty sweet fidget spinner. And I'm telling you, it's limited edition. Uh, dude, look uh, at this fidget spinner. This one's all metal. It's, it's like yeah, I was 0.2 Bitcoin for that <laughs> one. So you send me 0.1 Bitcoin. That transaction, for the basically, like you're going to have a wallet application on your phone or your computer or whatever it is. That will drop the transaction. And then once it goes out to the network, whatever nodes in the network your phone or your wallet application is connected to, those are going to be the ones that get it first. And then it'll propagate to the connections of those ones. So and, and not so that on. different so, from Bitcoin, um, uh, Bitcoin, from uh, torrents. Yes. Uh, yeah. Where like you're really downloading from like maybe four computers. They're just the nearest. They're the nearest one. Yeah. But within seconds, because the network affects uh, the vast majority, the vast percentage of nodes on the network are going to receive that transaction. Now, when that happens, that transaction is not confirmed. So this is the big thing here. When you don't have a centralized authority, you run into the problem of, well, how do we know that people haven't like spent the same money twice? Or how do we know people haven't gone in and tampered with the record? All these things. Right. So when you when you buy the fidget spinner for me, you send me like 0.1 Bitcoin, mm-hmm. there's an unconfirmed c- transaction. So basically, when that transaction is received by a certain type of node called a mining node, mm-hmm. it will be aggregated into what's called a memory pool or a mempool. And this is basically like a pool of current unverified transactions. So the mining node's job is to basically put all these transactions into a block, into a, something that's called a block. And all a block is, is all the transactions that have happened in roughly the last 10 minutes. And I'll explain what why it's 10 minutes in a minute here. I have like 50 so, questions, but we'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so you pack all those transactions up into this block. And then the mining node has to do something called proof of work. And all proof of work is, is a really tough mathematical problem that basically forces a computer to expend a lot of energy and electricity to basically say, yes, I've done a lot of work on a mathematical problem to prove that I've spent energy confirming these transactions. So we can, I mean, you can ask me what the proof of work is in a second here, but essentially like all the mining nodes across the globe are going to be trying to do this giant mathematical problem and trying to confirm this same exact pool of recent transactions. Okay. Okay. Let's pause. Let me attempt to decompose that (laughs) and and ask some questions. So, um, I buy my PSL. And I, I use Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. And you you happen to be sitting in Starbucks on your laptop and you participate in Bitcoin, but you're not a mining node. So okay. you are the closest nodes, so you get it, and you essentially pass on the task of verification further down the chain to someone who is a quote-unquote miner. Yes. Like M-I-N-E-R, not like, yes. not like someone who's like under 18, but someone who like... <laughs> Only people who are under 18 <laughs> are allowed to verify the transactions. That's Everybody why it's so that secure. Corrupt and old. Yeah. Okay. So no, it's a miner. It's like it evokes the the imagery of mining. Mm. Uh, and we'll get into why that is in a second. Work, but. work. 
Pretty need, much. Need yeah. more resources. Okay, so um, okay, so it gets passed to this miner, and right. it is you're saying my transaction is then bundled with a bunch of other ones that are pending into yes. a block. Right. And a block is just like a group. It's not like some fancy whatever. Now, yep, a block is a group of transactions. Okay, so now we have these group of transactions, mm-hmm. and you're saying that um, the miner needs to prove that it's expended a bunch of energy, essentially showing that it did verify this work. Yeah. Um, my so question. So the whole point. Oh, wait, go ahead. So, because you said uh, they by like solving some math equation, and I guess my question is, what is the math equation, right? Okay. Um, and uh. W- yeah, like, could you maybe explain, like, what is happening there? I guess I don't really – I get the needs to be verified, moving right. the transaction to someone whose job it is to verify. What happens? Okay, so let's – I feel like people are going to be like, why do I give a fuck about the math problem real quick when mm. I don't even know what a block is for? So essentially, if you have a decentralized banking network that isn't run by a central authority, that isn't run by the man with the iron fist, then you need to have, like, a ledger – with all the transactions, a giant record of all the transactions that everyone agrees on. Mm. The problem is when you have a decentralized network, there's no giant authority. What's to stop random Joe in Pennsylvania from writing up his own version of the ledger where he gets all the money. So you need some sort of, of, um, network of ledger of copy of the ledger that mm. everyone has that everyone agrees on. And to make it really, really tough, for someone to fake it or for someone to go back in time and like start changing records or for someone to manipulate the network, you basically have this proof of work that forces a computer to expend energy in order to solve a giant math problem. And if they can do that, then they get to say that their block is confirmed. It's added to the block chain, which is basically just a stack of all the blocks that have ever existed. So and then the longest chain that has existed is going to be the one that all the Bitcoin nodes will accept as the real one. Hmm. So the mathematical problem that you asked me about, um, you know about hashing, right? Yes. We, we, have, to, we have to explain what hashing is anyway, because you are you're a programmer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So hashing is just basically a technique in cryptography for taking a piece of information that you would like to be secret or obfuscated in some way, such as, um, I don't know, that pimple that you have on the back of your butt or something. You don't want other people to know about that. But let's you do let's need to use a word doctor. on a computer. I think that's. It could be a word. It could, yeah, it could be the word. Um, if you could hash my butt pimple or something. Mm. If I could hash your butt pimple, I'll work <laughs> on that. Sounds good. You can put any sort of word into a mathematical algorithm or a mathematical process, and you can get something that looks like garbled text. But if you have the key to ungarble it, then you, whoever has the key to ungarble it, they can see it. So the simplest hashing algorithm out there is a shift is a shift cipher, right? So if I if I have the word but, I could just tell you, hey, I'm gonna shift every single character in this word up one letter in the alphabet. Mm. So when you get it, just remember to shift it down. So but would be C V U U, right? Which to somebody who doesn't know the algorithm would just look like complete nonsense, right? Mm. So that is like cryptography at the simplest possible level. Um, Bitcoin hashes all the things, basically. Like it does so much hashing, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And this mathematical problem the miners have to do essentially is they have to take the hash of, I believe it's the block, and 
combine it with a random number that it, that their computer will generate, and they have to come up with a hash that starts with a certain number of zeros, mm. which is really difficult. And because I mean, if to get a hash that starts with a certain number of zeros, it's like a lot of zeros in a row, so it's really tough to do. So it will it take your computer a lot of energy and a lot of time to arrive at this number. And Bitcoin is designed so that it takes on average 10 minutes for one of these blocks to be um, confirmed by that mathematical problem being solved. So why and what does this prove? So fine. So you have to go and find this hash that's like really hard to find that has like however many zeros in the front. Sounds like a a real like dick move by the creators because there's a lot of work. (laughs) You know, like we're spending all this electricity. Like what? What does this show that you just have the most powerful computer or, you know, so then you're the boss? No. So Bitcoin mining is a competition. So basically every mining node in the world is going to be running hashing algorithms, trying to find the answer to this mathematical problem. The first one that does gets to say, okay, I found it. Now this block is confirmed. It will propagate that information across the network. All the other mining nodes will verify it and say, okay, yep, that's the correct answer to the math problem. They add the block to the blockchain, and then the whole process starts on the next block in a row. So basically what we're saying is this block is is confirmed, and it took somebody a lot of work to confirm it, and everyone else was trying to do work as well. So basically you couldn't just like on a piece of scratch paper in two seconds, be like, yeah, this is confirmed because I say so. It's confirmed by the fact that you expended a lot of electricity to do so. Now, here's the beauty of it. Every block not only contains the transactions during that time period, but it also contains a hash of the block before it. So what that means is that every time a new block is added to the blockchain, every block underneath it becomes more and more difficult to change in the future and more and more trusted. Mm. Because if you wanted to go and change a block from 50 blocks ago, not only would you have to do that difficult computer algorithm and expend all your electricity to change it, you would then have to change every single block that that has happened uh, since then to make all of their hashes match. And while you're doing that, everyone else in the world is still running their own miners on the current blocks. And remember, again, all the Bitcoin nodes in the world are going to accept the longest confirmed chain. Mm-hmm. So this is what makes it very resistant to attack. If I want to go attack something by changing a transaction a while ago or controlling the blockchain myself, I have to control like the majority of the world's computing power. And the further back I want to go, the exponentially harder it would get to change anything. Okay, so... Um Sounds super complicated, uh, and, and I, I get the the exponentially more difficult thing. So fine, it's it's trusted. Um, why is, are all these people verifying these transactions? It sounds like an enormous amount of work, an enormous amount it of is. cost associated with it. I, I've read yep. that there's like Bitcoin mining. I don't know towns or cities in China where there's <laughs> like insane amount of computers and I don't know. Yes, there are. What, what, so, what's going on there? There is a reward for mining. And this is the way that Bitcoin is introduced into the system. So basically, every time that somebody wins the race to confirm a block, mm-hmm. if they are the one to confirm that block, they're going to get a reward. Now, when Bitcoin started back in 2009, that was 50 Bitcoin. Wow. 
Um, every 210,000 blocks or basically roughly every four years, that reward will have. So in um, 2012, it went down to 25 per block. And then in 2016, it went down to 12.5 per block. So whoever is winning the current block race right now is going to get 12.5 Bitcoin. Whoa, and so the system basically just creates that Bitcoin out of nothing. It's called a Coinbase transaction. It's the very first one on a block and it assigns it to the Bitcoin address of the miner who won that race, essentially. So, so two things. Um, so if they get 12.5, and what's the price of Bitcoin like $50, now? Right yeah, now. that's like, it's like 4,200. Oh my, yeah. So, so if you actually verify transaction, one of, I don't know how many are happening all the time, you get 52,000 plus dollars. Well, you're, you're verifying a block of transactions. A block might include like 400 or oh, 500. Oh, right, right, right. Because it all gets grouped together in a yeah. block. Okay. And again, remember, it's, it's on average every 10 minutes. So on average, every 10 minutes, about $50,000 worth of Bitcoin at the current market rate is created by the system. Um, and so as more and more miners come into the network and as their hardware improves, obviously they're going to be able to run these mathematical algorithms faster and faster. So you think like, well, as these computers get faster, they'd solve the problem faster. And part of the Bitcoin protocol is that it will just adjust the difficulty of the mathematical problem. So basically, like it'll look and say, all right, in the last two weeks, there was like a billion more miners coming out of the network and they were solving these problems way faster. So we'll just make them get one more zero on that hash. Um, mm. And it just basically adjusts. So it always will take roughly 10 minutes per block. Wow. So basically every hour you can see how much value is created. Now, that is not the only incentive. That's one incentive. And then every time that you want to send Bitcoin to somebody else, um, you, there are the inputs and the outputs. So if you want to buy my fidget spinner for 0.1 Bitcoin, uh, you might input 0.1005 Bitcoin. The output may be 0.1, which will go to me. And the difference, this isn't explicitly said, but the difference between the input and the output is called the implied transaction fee. Mm -hmm. And this is basically an incentive for people to confirm your transactions quickly. Um, so when the, whoever wins the mining race not only gets the reward of generated Bitcoin, they also get all the transaction fees for every transaction within that block. Now, right now, the transaction fees account for probably like half a percent compared to the Bitcoin that's generated. Mm -hmm. But again, every four years on average, or roughly, um, that Bitcoin per or that is generated is going to go down by half. Mm -hmm. And in the year 2140, all Bitcoin that will ever be created will be out and no more will ever be made. Um, that's, I think, 21 million Bitcoins. So as time goes on, the percentage of the incentive that is, that is represented by transaction fees goes up and up and up until eventually it will be nothing but transaction fees. But still, that means there's always an incentive for miners to mine and there's always an incentive for miners to play the game as they're supposed to rather than trying to subvert the network or gain a ton of computing power and overcome it. So it looks like an entire ecosystem essentially created itself or was created with Bitcoin and the, the, the other cryptocurrencies to just verify transactions and what's going on and you know, I was reading somewhere that there's like a mining place in China. They make like $7 million a day, like doing this stuff. And so awesome that it now has like a whole network to support itself. Yeah. Um, 
but like what gives what what do you what is the purpose of bitcoin what can you do with it uh why should you give a shit all right so there's two questions here what is the purpose of bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and a bigger more fundamental and important question in my opinion what is the purpose of the blockchain mm-hmm. so bitcoin is a decentralized currency meaning that your currency is not controlled by a centralized authority if you look back, I think it was in 2014, like in Cyprus, um, their country pretty much went insolvent and the bank was literally taking money from people to keep itself afloat. And their original plan was to take money from like middle class families, just like, yeah, we just need your money. You know, so a lot of people who are are very interested in um, independence and privacy um, and not letting a centralized authority control their money. Like they like the, they like the fact that they can control it themselves. Like you are your own bank. So in the nuclear apocalypse mm. or maybe not in the nuclear apocalypse, cause it won't be, I don't computers. think in the, yeah, there wouldn't be uh, an internet. So, so we're going in, back to bottle caps in that case. Yeah. So not in the nuclear apocalypse, not in the post and not in like the zombie apocalypse, but in one of the apocalypses where we still have computers, Bitcoin would be the currency. Okay. Potentially, potentially. Yeah. Or some, maybe some form of crypto. Um, another really good application is the fact that the transaction fees are very low. So a a lot of the uses seem less useful to me and you here in America, Mm -hmm. but consider you're saying um, because the dollar is trusted. No, no, no. I'm saying because we don't have to do what a lot of other people in the world have to do. So consider somebody born in India. Mm-hmm. They immigrate to the United States. They get a good job. And like millions of people who have emigrated from their home countries, they send money back home to their families. Mm-hmm. It's called remittances. Oh, and there's and right huge now, fees associated with it. There's like, yeah, sometimes like 10% fees with remittances, depending mm-hmm. on the country. You got to deal with corruption. Like if, if I come from a corrupt country, that government might take a ton of that. Um, and the time to clear that transaction often takes like two weeks sometimes. Mm. Where bit with Bitcoin, you can send some Bitcoin to your mom. Doesn't matter where your mom is in the world. You're going to pay that small transaction fee associated with the miner. And boom, your mom has Bitcoin now. Mm. So obviously there's... It's not like all sunshine and roses, but this is definitely happening. And it's not just Bitcoin. There's a system that was developed in Africa a while ago called M-Pesa. And it's not cryptocurrency, but it's basically ways a way to send money with a cell phone. Hmm. And it's so much better than the old remittance methods. So we're getting... So as long as you send this Bitcoin ways. to your mom in India and she immediately converts it into the appropriate currency, like it should be pretty lossless. It's like or the- uses it. Mm. You know, I mean, who knows? I don't know if people accept um, Bitcoin there. You know, they might start doing so in the future. I know John McAfee is trying to start like a Bitcoin exchange in India. Mm. He's trying to make it like a big thing there. So as there's more adoption by the world, you're going to start seeing more goods and services that can be bought with cryptocurrency that don't even have to be transitioned over to a fiat currency. So, But yes, you can also transition your, your crypto over to a fiat currency get out of the exchange, whatever exchange you can work with in your country, and then go spend that money like normal. I was trying to look up things that you could buy with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, and it looks like overwhelmingly you could buy Domino's pizza and drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, 
Yeah, I think a lot of people are holding it. There is definitely more that you can buy than just that. There's like coffee shops in in San Francisco that accept Bitcoin. Uh, but yeah, we're we're definitely in the early stages of it. And I think most people are just holding or converting back to fiat currency. And, you know, you're going to have to wait for adoption there. But that is there, there's a difference between what you can do right now and what the technology represents in terms of potential things you could do. OK, so I feel like uh, we've discussed the crypto end of it. Uh, the currency end? The, the, well, so I, I want to talk about the currency end in a second. But uh, okay. so, so we discussed the, the crypto end. Um, we discussed the decentralized and an, and did we discuss the anonymous part of it? Uh, not really. So we can talk a little bit about that. So this so, is why everyone uses it for drugs, for example. This is why everyone uses it for drugs. Um, theoretically, your money is anonymous with Bitcoin because you actually th- this is a fundamental concept that we need to explain. You don't hold Bitcoin. It's not like you know, your grandpa gives you $5 and you now hold that $5 bill. It isn't like that. Um, and I mean, maybe it isn't even like that in fiat currency. We could debate that too. Mm. What you hold are private keys that correspond to public keys. So, I mean, anybody who is curious can go read up on public key, private key. Let's just say it's a hash. It's a hash basically. So the money, the coins exist on the blockchain. Every, coin is bundled up in a previous transaction and that transaction contains a digital signature or digital fingerprint of its owner. So essentially what uh, every, every, every output can correspond to an input, but it basically says like whoever holds the key that corresponds to this digital fingerprint is allowed to initiate a transaction with this amount of Bitcoin that is associated with this address. Mm -hmm. So basically what you own or what, like if you have a Bitcoin wallet application on your phone or on your computer are private keys. Okay. And you would use those private keys to sign a transaction over to somebody else. And to be clear, that's all you own. The, so the keys that you own are not to the Bitcoins themselves. They're just to the quote unquote wallet or what? Or, not, not a wallet. The, a wallet is an application that contains keys. So what are so the, the keys, keys to again? The keys correspond to a Bitcoin address. Mm. And on the blockchain, the consensus says this address currently holds this amount of Bitcoin. The only person who can unlock these funds and decide to transfer them somewhere else is whoever holds this key. So you could have a zillion different Bitcoin addresses. And as long as you can keep track of the keys that go to those, you can you can control those funds. And within the Bitcoin ledger and the blockchain, there is nothing inherent in the Bitcoin system to say... Andrew Fiebert is the owner of these keys. And to maybe draw a, a loose, shitty analogy, um, like you own all your emails so long as you are the only holder of the password to your email account. And once I have yes. the password to your email account, I own all of your emails. And, yep. and that's a good thing because it's it's information. It isn't like a physical key. Right. If so, you see my private key written down somewhere and you take a picture of it with your cell phone, you own my Bitcoin just as much as I do at this point. And then it's a race to send it or transfer it or something. Yep. And um, so now the anonymity is is bolstered by the fact that most wallet applications will use an address only once. Hmm. So like, again, say you've got so one the key Bit- will only get sent once is what you're saying. 
used ones. Yeah, pretty mm. much. Um, so basically say like you've got one Bitcoin at a specific address. You want to buy my fidget spinner for 0.1 Bitcoin. Well, obviously you need 0.9 Bitcoin as change. Mm. A smart wallet application is not going to send that 0.9 Bitcoin back to your original address because that's that's what's called address reuse. And when you reuse addresses multiple times, you start building a web of connections between addresses that make it easier to do you know, correlation and data analysis to figure out who you are and who you are, right? So a good wallet application will send the change back to a completely brand new generated Bitcoin address out of thin air, but that you also hold the keys to. So if you were somehow able to determine that blah, blah, blah address was Andrew Fiebert, and then after he buys, I don't know, eight pounds of heroin, he, me, buy, buy eight pounds of heroin, I then get a new address, even with my change and whatever. So if I did it again, you'd have to find out my new address. And I guess that's the yes. anonymous end of it, is that everything is constantly shifting. It's all it's constantly shifting, and the addresses are not inherently tied to a specific identity. Now, for all you wannabe Silk Road junkies out there who might be listening to this podcast, um, bear in mind that world governments have ways of uh, correlating data that you probably would have never thought of. So I'm not going to recommend, I mean, obviously I don't recommend breaking the law, but don't think that you're really hiding behind a veil of anonymity because they can do all kinds of things. And I, unless you, you know, go find some dude in an alley and you wear a ski mask and you exchange cash for Bitcoin, like most people who get their hands on Bitcoin, they get it through an exchange and that exchange is going to want some form of identity verification. Mm. So there's an origination there. And then you can follow the transaction chain from that point to figure out where that money came from. Like and with Coinbase, uh, Coinbase.com, mm. you kind of have to tell them who you are because this is one of the things that's inherent with Bitcoin. It's not with fiat currency. With Bitcoin, transactions are non-reversible. Mm-hmm which makes it especially dangerous for anyone to ever see your private key. Because if, if you send money to an address, you can't reverse that. There's no way to do it. Uh, with a Visa transaction or PayPal or whatever, that is reversible. So if I'm setting up an exchange and I'm like, yeah, give me your US dollars and I'll give you Bitcoin. Somebody can give me $100. I'll give them Bitcoin. I have created an irreversible transaction from me to them of mm-hmm. Bitcoin. And then they can go to the bank and say, hey, I want to reverse that transaction. And defraud me. Mm. So that's why an exchange is going to require some form of verification to mitigate against that. So it's almost like uh, with cryptocurrency, there there is no concept of like there is no fraud. Even though fraud can happen, there is no fraud because everything is permanent. What do you mean there is no fraud? Well, okay. So if you steal my credit card and you go buy 100 fidget spinners. There's I'm just no gonna- chargeback fraud. I'm going to call my bank. I'm going to say that's that's not a verified transaction. Yes. And somewhere, someone down the line loses money, but it's not me and it's not the bank. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and in order to reverse, I think the, the only instance of a reversal that I have heard of is, and I'm pulling this from distant memory so mm-hmm. people can go verify it if they want. Uh, there's another cryptocurrency called Ethereum. And uh, what, what was it? There was this, it was an exchange or it was something called um, the Dow. Mm-hmm. Not the Dow Jones, but the Dow. And I forget what they were doing with it, but they held a lot of Ethereum, like millions of dollars worth. And through some dumb security error, 
they allowed someone to steal like $50 million worth of Ethereum from them. Mm. And again, non-reversible transaction. The only way to reverse a transaction like that is to get the majority of the people on the network to say, hey, we're going to fork the currency. We're going to cre- basically create, we're going to go back in time, erase that transaction and and start over again from that point. Mm. Um, and I believe, now this, this is again pulling stuff from my ass, but I believe that is why you have Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. You have two different forms of Ethereum now. Ethereum normal is the one that forked away from that fraudulent transaction and is more used and is a higher price in dollars. But there is still the classic where the people who are like really adamant about the whole non-reversible thing and who think that the DAO people just basically got what was coming to them want to keep living in that world. So it is possible if, if I was an original owner of Ethereum and had nothing to do with this exchange and whatever happened in this thing, uh, my money could have forked and I could be playing with money that's not even or is or is even less real than than I I guess so. Honestly, I don't well understand a fork that well. Like it's not something I've really read mm. up on, but I assume that if if the software is going to perform a fork, then if you are still running like say Bitcoin forks mm. and official Bitcoin forks in one direction if you're still running official bitcoin then the coin that you hold is going to well you don't again you don't hold a coin it's just that the the version of the blockchain that you are using contains coin associated with your keys that's worth a certain amount and if you decide to switch over to the other software then it may correspond to a different amount so So a fork is definitely something that's debated a lot is is thought of as a, a potential threat uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I want, and, and there's like, you said Ethereum, there's Bitcoin, there's like Dogecoin, there's like all these. <laughs> yeah. And I think Litecoin, that was actually. Dogecoin, Dark. Dogecoin, I think, was uh, a trolling attempt. And then it actually became successful and they made a lot of money, whatever. Anyways. Yeah, it's real. There, there's a bunch of these currencies. And, and I think. Uh, if if you could see me while I'm talking, I'm air quoting currencies. So the, the why don't you think they're currencies? So, well, okay. So so the bedrock of all of this is that uh, the Bitcoin, Ether, whatever are currencies, yes. and um, I am not quite sure that I agree. Uh, I want to ask you and what. One, what you think, and well, actually, first, what is a currency? Let's start there. All right. So to answer what a currency is, we have to answer what money is. Mm-hmm. And during, according to your classical definition in economics, um, money is something that is a store of value, mm-hmm. a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. Mm-hmm. So can you use it to account things? Can you use it as a representation of value so I don't have to trade you half my cow or I don't have to go into weird debt to you and only you, um, which is more more common. The cow thing is anachronistic. Mm. Um, and then medium of exchange. Can I easily exchange it for goods and services so with you? It sounds and like it currency. is de- definitely a medium of exchange and it is so yeah, definitely a accountability ledger. Yeah, and a currency is basically just any form of money that actually circulates around as a medium of exchange. Well, so, so that definition, 
Bitcoin is definitely a currency. I guess the one piece that I don't see is the store of value. And um, how does the fiat system store value? Well, okay. There's value and trust in the U.S. government. That's all it is. So, it's not tied to the gold standard since the 1970s. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold I want to, I want to give like a, an anecdote really quick. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, uh, two guys meet on the street. Joe tells Bob about the hamster he has for sale. It's pedigreed and highly intelligent. Bob says he'd like to buy a hamster for his kid. How much is it? Joe answers. Half a million. Bob tells him he's crazy. I mean, it is an intelligent hamster, but half a million is crazy. They meet again the next day. How'd you do with that hamster? Bob asks. Sold it, says Joe. Did you get 500000 Bob asks. Sure, Joe says. Cash? No. Joe answers, I took two $250,000 canaries. Okay. So um, you have this hamster. This guy's trying to sell for 500000 Okay. That's ridiculous, right? Okay. To one guy. and But to the other guy, it seems fine. And so he sold it, and he's got two $250,000 canaries. Also okay. ridiculous, right? But, but maybe not to the other guy. So what's your point here? So um, my, my point is that uh, in order for it to be a store of value, I think people need to agree that it's a store of value. Okay. And like, okay, so fiat currency, right? We agree that it's a store of value on what basis? Like on what basis is $1 worth one fidget spinner? Okay. Well, why can't I go the, into the, Whole Foods I'll, and I tell you buy why. a breakfast burrito for $5? It, it's actually, so clearly, it's, it's really simple, Thomas. Oh, uh, okay. So it's not really simple, but I believe that this is simple. the case because if you were to go to me and say, Andrew, this fidget spinner costs a dollar. And then in a week from now, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to buy it. And I'm like, how much is a fidget spinner? It's likely very close to a dollar. Okay. Right? Um, and if the fidget spinner on day one was a dollar and on day seven was $500, I'd be like, you're insane. I'm now really not buying it. Um, I, w- I would hold my dollar, Right. Uh, but if I came to you in seven days and you're like, it's 25 cents. And so, and so what happens is like when it fluctuates wildly like that, all of a sudden it is not a standard means of transacting. Uh, so you're saying that the volatility in the system means that it's not a store of value. So, so I think that's one half. And I think the other half is the people who hold dollars are looking to do things with those dollars, like buy a house, yep. buy fidget spinners, whatever. The vast majority of people who hold Bitcoin are either profiting from being part of the network or are speculating. And and it, yeah, they're speculating. I agree with that. So, so then, like, there it's actually like, it, maybe it is a store of value, but what is the value? And it's clearly a, a false value if it's speculative. So... I guess the difference here is that you're saying that it isn't a store of value and it isn't a currency by virtue of its volatility. I would say that it is volatile and it's probably not a good store of value right now, but it has 
the characteristics of a currency. And again, this this goes back to why I am more bullish on blockchain technology in general mm. than on the specific implementation of Bitcoin. Because right now, Bitcoin is hard to get into. And yes, you're right. It's miners and speculators and a few people who are trying to legitimize it as a real currency. And that makes it tough to use as a real true currency because the majority of the people are just kind of in it to hodl and hopefully exchange mm. for dollars again at some point in the future. Um, but you have you have bank regulators, you have people at the IMF, and you have all these people who are saying, like, we're starting to see the, the virtues of the blockchain, of the technology behind this, this innovation here. And I think we're going to see more and more of a shift towards using that technology in the future, whether or not it's in Bitcoin. So, so again, I'm not telling people that. to go buy a bunch of Bitcoin. Mm. I'm, I'm more excited about the specific application of the underlying technology. So, so I agree with you on, on, I guess that point. And I guess when it comes to, you know, I almost foresee something like dollars or euros or something moving towards a more cryptocurrency-esque approach, how banks transfer money between themselves or I transfer money to you. And maybe it doesn't yeah. take three days. Maybe it takes 10 minutes for me yep. to send you money. Um, but buying into like Bitcoin or Ether or any of these like ICOs, there's all these people who are like, I don't know, yep. they're, like, they're making like millions and millions of dollars. And, and when it, all these people who you may perceive as dumb or making millions of dollars. Um, you shouldn't be like, well, I'm smarter than them. You should probably just run as fast as you can in the other direction. <laughs> That's like my gut. I do want to explain something to you. And mm -hmm. I will say like, I have like 50 bucks in it. So mm -hmm. it's like play again. Like it's the same thing with individual stocks. And this, this comes down to a question I got on my budgeting episode over on the college info geek show. Someone was like, well, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? Should we be investing in that? And my answer is the same as it's always been. Like you need to build up a foundational investment in index funds, in mutual funds that are not run by people that are dumb. Mm. Like build that foundation up there. You've done that. I've done that. Once you've done that, then there, I, I think there's no harm in taking a small amount of money to experiment and to learn some things. I agree. Which I've I've done with stocks. I use Robinhood and I've done a little bit here as well. But I view it as largely educational. I don't view it as a speculation opportunity where I'm going to get rich. It's just like I want to learn and I want to put a little bit on the line just to see and to make mm -hmm. it fun. Right. Um, I do want to explain something, though. The reason that the U.S. dollar or any other currency in the world seems as, quote unquote, stable as it is and is, is useful as a store of value is because of the trust we put into central authority. That is all that it is based on. I, it's I, not. It's not backed by gold. It's I not backed don't by agree any physical, you. real world asset. It's backed by. It's backed by number one. The majority of people use it, mm. and number two, it is tied to the people who are in power and who run the show. So, so the reason that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are so volatile is because people peg that to the existing incumbent currency and. More and more people are coming into the system. They're speculating. They're seeing all this stuff happen. You're going to see volatility, but it is it is a byproduct of it being an offshoot of the current system, which mm. does not have a real tangible value that it is backed by. 
So you have to think of the so cryptocurrency. So neither as does like, neither does fiat though. And and granted, it yeah, has the trust. Saying. It has the trust of I guess the federal government, whatever. But right. the and and to a degree that is the value of the dollar, and obviously supply and demand. But I think far more I guess supply and demand where. Um, as a U.S. citizen who earns blah, blah, blah a year, and there's quite a lot of money that's earned in this country, the only way that you could pay the IRS is in dollars. And is there true. is this concept called the petrodollar, and one of the best things the U.S. ever did in its domination of the world and currency and whatever is forcing uh, initially, and then uh, it just kind of continued on, the transacting of oil in dollars. So if you want to buy a barrel of oil and you have euros, you have to buy dollars and then buy oil. And so because there is all this latent demand for dollars just necessary to pay taxes, buy oil, so on and so forth, it it props up the value, right? And then because everyone needs to hold it, you know, it becomes more common form of exchange. Basically, you're just saying like this currency is the good currency because everyone's locked into it. Well, like, you basically, know, it's like captive let, ransom audience. Like let, use this. Otherwise, com- you use this because you, you have to use it. Let, let's know? draw like another really shitty, loose comparison. Not even money related. Language, right? The right. vast majority of the Internet and not not in terms of speakers of the world, but the vast majority of the Internet is in English. Yes. And you could ask why, you know, and maybe somebody would be like, well, English is the best and everyone who doesn't speak English is stupid. But that's not really the case. What the the, the more real reality here is that it started in English. It gained such momentum in English. And then all the best stuff just happened to be in English because of all those prior things. And so if you wanted to get the best parts of the Internet, you needed to know English and then if you wanted the biggest consumption base, you know, if you're creating a, a podcast or a website or whatever, you're going to create it in English. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy where you could create a Spanish website and there are plenty of people that are looking for Spanish websites. But if you're looking for the biggest audience, you're going to go with English. And the same kind of happened with the dollar, whether or not it was... Um, you know, by design or because it's better than the euro or anything, but it has this momentum. And so it's just like this consensus of a bunch of people essentially agreeing. Um, And that is something very, very challenging to upend for Bitcoin, you know, or... Look, I, I will be the last person to say that Bitcoin is going to kill the dollar or that mm. people are going to mass adopt any specific cryptocurrency, whether it be Dogecoin or Bitcoin. I'm not saying that. Mm. But just as English has evolved a lot since the inception of the Internet, I mean, I, people communicate halfway in emoji these days. Yeah. The monetary system is going to have to evolve as well, because even if the dollar and the U.S. fiat system is the most used one, um, and if that's even true, I'm not sure if it is. I know it's the most transacted internationally. There are problems. You know, there's people from India trying to send money back to their mom. And they have to pay a 10% fee. Like there are big problems. Mm. And you, the dollar seems so secure and everything because the US is like the, the global dominator. But think about other fiat currencies that people have to use. 
You know, they're they're supported by shakier governments in some cases that sometimes collapse or sometimes take the money away from their citizens for no good reason. Um, these technologies represent potential solutions for some of those problems. And I foresee that I foresee them being adopted in some way or being used in some way. You know, maybe there are micro networks of people in certain countries where the, the government is so corrupt and the currency is so debased that they they don't even use it anymore. And you have actually seen there. I mean, before crypto was even a thing, you see instances of people adopting alternative currencies within small local areas because their government currency is worthless. Venezuela, for example. Yeah. The hyperinflation to the point uh, there was like analogies. There was a basket filled with cash and you know, it was laying on the street and someone would dump the cash out and take the basket because the currency is essentially worthless. Yeah. And I mean, I, I didn't hear that one, but that sounds a lot like uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany when the, the I think that was the so analogy. Like it was the like person a, stole the wheelbarrow and dumped the cash out. Mm. And it's, a, it's like a billion marks to buy a, um, a loaf of bread or something. So. Anyway, that that's that's the potential application there. One thing I want to talk about though is is potential applications of the blockchain outside of currency. Mm. Because this is where it really excites me. The blockchain is the first well-implemented and verified so far technology where you can decentralize trust and you can transact without the need for trusting some dude halfway across the world. Mm. That's the main innovation. And the applications go further than just currency. Um, take, for example, the idea of a smart contract. The easiest way to explain a smart contract is that it's a contract that is hardwired either in computer code or electronics. You put money into a vending machine, you're going to get a Reese's cup out of the vending machine unless it gets stuck on the stupid coil. That's a smart contract. There's, there's no human that has to be trusted to implement what's been agreed upon. And with blockchain, you can you can store a smart contract in the blockchain. It is exponentially harder and harder to undo as more blocks are uh, added to the blockchain. And you get really cool things like uh, like the idea that, say, you have a a fund for aid for uh, national disasters or natural disasters. Right. And that stores a certain amount of money in a centralized area for now. But say it's hooked up to the APIs of seismographs across the nation. And a seismograph detects a uh, an earthquake in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. A smart track contract can be enacted to say, all right, we have a seismographic reading in San Francisco. We are going to automatically send funds over to aid organizations in San Francisco immediately without mm -hmm. the need for any human decision or anything. Boom. The Red Cross there has money to do things right away. Hmm. I love that kind of idea. The fact that you can embed these sort of automatic behaviors without the need for trust or oversight because it's in the blockchain. I heard uh, a similar analogy, and I guess the smart contracts is like the selling point of Ether. Um, yes. Bit, so Bitcoin doesn't have that. And one of the things I heard is like, imagine you uh, rented an Airbnb and mm -hmm. the smart contract was embedded in Ether. And uh, at the exact time that you had it rented, you could just walk up with your phone and it unlocks and, you know, you pay immediately at that point that you arrive. Yep. Um, and, yeah, no people are involved. And the person who owns a property can trust that only you are getting in um, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Or imagine you had a uh, Kickstarter 2.0 where 
all of the funds that the person who wants to build the next cool video game um, gets from backers go into a specific address that is associated with the smart contract. And it says, all right, once you have hit certain milestones, such as uploading a certain piece of code to a GitHub repo mm. or releasing a trailer, I don't know, you know, there's a way you'd have to think about how to enforce these things, but it could, it could like dole the money out instead of just giving it to this person on the basis mm. of, I'm going to make the next Banjo Kazooie and trust me because I made one before in the past, you know, or something like that. So I, I love the, the whole idea of not needing to trust untrustworthy humans. And to do it, it's interesting because, uh, we were talking and I actually don't even know if we mentioned on the episode, but it, it took like, I don't know, maybe close to 10 days for me to get money into Coinbase. Yep. Uh, and which is the where you could buy Bitcoin or Ether or whatever. Um, if if you're using things like this and people weren't involved and if it was automatically verified, whatever, that would potentially be ten minutes. Um, yeah, which, yeah, it would be it would be super quick. Hmm. Uh, so there are a few things I want to mention briefly before we wrap up here. Hmm. I think someone inevitably is going to have the question: How do I mine Bitcoin? I had friends in college who were mining Bitcoin and they were probably dumb and like spent it on stupid stuff way back in like 2010. But if any of my friends actually did keep their Bitcoin, they're they're probably rolling in it now. Uh. But all right. So, again, we, we talked about how the Bitcoin network, the mining network, they're all going to work on solving these very difficult mathematical problems. Theoretically, any one grind of the hash, as you want to say it, basically generating a random number combining it with the hash of the transactions could arrive at that solution. But it is very improbable that one specific grind of the hash would do it. Mm. So really what it comes down to is can your hardware grind hashes incredibly quickly? Now, back in like 2012, you could realistically mine Bitcoin on a gaming PC and expect to make a profit. But these days, people have what are called application-specific integrated circuits which are literally chips that are built to do literally nothing but mine for Bitcoins. Mm. So you're competing against, like you said, people in China who have gigantic warehouses full of hundreds and hundreds of these things. And by the way, state-of-the-art graphics cards. I just want to say um, on the profit end, the the cost is electricity. Yes, the co- well, the cost is electricity. The cost is also the hardware you mm. buy. Right. Um, and yeah, so... You, there are actually calculators you can go to online. You can put in like like an ASIC, application-specific integrated mm. circuit. It's going to take less electricity than a normal classical CPU mm. because it is designed to do one thing, one thing only. So, you know, you're, if you're trying to mine on your desktop PC, it's going to cost a heck of a lot more in electricity than an ASIC is. But they don't really sell home ASIC, the very few home ASIC rigs they sell anymore because most of them are just getting bought up by these giant farms. Mm. Um, so you're probably going to spend more on electricity and hardware than you would ever make back. The other thing is people don't really mine alone anymore. Like we said that the the reward for discovering a block is 12.5 B, uh, Bitcoin right now, which is about $50,000. But the vast majority of people mine in what are called mining pools. So essentially you join a pool and um, when you're working on a block – that Coinbase transaction, the one that will happen when the block is discovered and that reward is paid out to a specific Bitcoin address, it isn't yours, it's the pool's. 
So the pool that wins will get $50,000. Maybe it's your computer. Maybe it's some other dude who's in your pool. And then you'll all split it like a lottery pool. Proportional so to the, uh, your contributions. I'm proportional guessing. to your contributions. Yep. Basically how much, how much ever you expended. So, you know, Chinese server farm dude, even if you're the one with your rinky dink desktop who won uh, Chinese server farm dude probably put more effort into it. So he may get the lion's share of the Bitcoin from that. And you may get a little tiny pittance which can't even pay your electric bills. So mining Bitcoin specifically is no longer a hobbyist pursuit. There are other coins that you could mine if you really want to get into this stuff, but this isn't for us to tell you to do or not to do. Um, the other thing is like where to get it. If you want to, again, we probably have listeners in several different countries, mm. so you're going to have to do your research. Uh, the easiest place to get it is probably coinbase.com. They've like made it as easy as possible. You just connect your PayPal or your bank account or your or your credit card. And if you um, want ten dollars and you want to give me ten dollars just for using it, listen to my matters.com slash coinbase. Nailed it. You sneaky bad. I didn't even yeah. know you were gonna do that. I wasn't planning on it, but since you were talking about it, <laughs> <laughs> I think I should get the money from that. You've been all like shitting on Bitcoin today. Okay, fine. <laughs> if you want Thomas to get the Bitcoin, listen money matters.com slash coinbase. <laughs> oh man anyway um, not, i'll split I, it with you i i don't want to plug i mean it's what i'm using it is an but interface there, are, there to... are other things out there uh and you could get there are many ways to get bitcoin besides an exchange mm. like i said you can if somebody you know has bitcoin you can exchange cash mike tyson has bitcoin atms in las vegas there are Bitcoin ATMs mm. in certain cities. And there is a site out there. I don't know the name, but there's a site out there that will help you locate them where you can go. You can put money into an ATM. You can get Bitcoin um, or you can work through an exchange. Coinbase is like the dead easiest way to get it because you just pay them via whatever you want. PayPal, credit card, bank it's account, like whatever. It's like the premier Silicon Valley startup trying to solve the exchange problem. Yes. And there are other ones. Gemini is coming out. Um, there's one called GDAX, which is it's part of Coinbase, mm. but it's for like institutional investors. Uh, and you can actually get involved in it. If you have a Coinbase account, you have a GDAX account and it looks really confusing. But the nice thing is their transaction fees are actually lower. Coinbase has pretty high fees. Mm. Um, and I've, I've found that like you kind of have to figure out the threshold for when the fee increases. So like I bought um, like $50 worth and the fee was $2 which is like 4%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I figured out that if I bought $204, then the fee is only $299. So <laughs> that's less of a percentage. So I think if I if I do another one at some point, I'll put like $204 exactly in. If I put 205 it goes up to like $3.01 or something like that. I don't know. Like there's math that you could do. <laughs> on like uh, the other thing that like any responsible Bitcoin person interested person is going to tell you is that it is not smart to keep the majority of your coins in an exchange. Um, now you may think that Coinbase is like this great startup that you can trust, but back like three years ago, um, Mt. Gox, which was in Japan, Hmm. I think they were the largest exchange at the time. They got hacked in like zillions of dollars. I don't know how much it was, but it was a, a crap ton of money got stolen, they went bankrupt, and everyone who had Bitcoin stored with them lost their Bitcoin. So you can look into hardware wallets. You can look into paper wallets. Um, just you know, be advised that really your access to your coins is your keys. 
And if you're going to send money to another Bitcoin address, you have to type that address correctly or have an application that you trust to send to a specific address. And there's lots of malware out there that would love to change the Bitcoin address you're sending to or would love to steal your keys. So again, this is right now, the specific implementations are Wild Wild West territory. Mm. And I honestly don't recommend anybody who's not willing to do some reading and to kind of get into it to put any significant amount of money into it at all. Because it's easy to be stupid and lose it. It really is. You know? And I, I don't even plan on putting that much money into it. I'm just interested in the tech. But yeah. I, I think that's all I wanted to say. I have all kinds of like different questions I have written down in my notes here. Uh, yesterday I was I was reading about elliptic curve cryptography. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I got real deep in it. And then I got real paranoid because like I basically read about like the foundations of literally all security in all computers. Mm. And it's it's basically like calculated using these seemingly random numbers that are derived that are not from random. curves. And then, it, and then like there's, there's a seed for the curve and then there's all this debate in the community. It's like, Oh, was this seed for this curve actually, you know, given to us by the NSA because they know how to make it weak. And I'm like, Oh my God, the foundations of cryptography could be completely compromised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can get real deep in this stuff. And I did yesterday. Uh, but we won't go into that because we're not a cryptography podcast. Mm. Uh, the one recommendation I will give you is a podcast I've been listening to called the Bad Cryptography Podcast. I found it pretty entertaining and they have they do a pretty good job of explaining this stuff if this like hour and a half conversation isn't enough for you. So that might be something to look into. And then for those of you who are nerds, I'm reading the book Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh that book involves a lot of code because it tells you how to program the blockchain, but it also explains the blockchain pretty well if you want to like get real nerdy about it. So yeah, uh, I think that's it. Andrew looks like he's, he's pretty <laughs> just like yeah, this for now. <laughs> so as always, guys, if you have questions about this topic or anything else related to personal finance, our email is listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. So shoot us your questions, shoot us your catchphrases for the beginning of our episodes so we can share them with the world and sound very stupid. Otherwise, if you enjoy our podcast, a great way to support it is to go over to iTunes or to Apple Podcasts on your phone or maybe even to Google Play. I'm not sure if Google Play does this, but you can review our podcast. You can give it a rating, star rating, and uh, if you like it, you can give it five stars. If you hate it, you can give us one star and tell us we sound like poop. But we like to hear how we're doing, and it also helps to spread our podcast out to more people. It helps us climb the charts within those apps, and that makes us happy. Mm. So last thing, listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox is where you can find all of our favorite financial resources. I don't know if Coinbase is going to be on there. because no, like We don't recommend this for the average investor. Again, build your mutual fund based on index funds, base of investments, first before you do any stupid shit like we're doing <laughs> including individual stocks but especially this wild west crap uh but yeah i find it interesting i wanted to share and hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode i think that's about it so until next week we'll see y'all later
please tell your friends about this show. <laughs>